And welcome to this week's episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover. We've got Kyle Crooks on the far side of the screen. And today in the center of the screen, we welcome in not only one of my mentors, one of my teammates on the Crimson Tide Sports Network. He is the longtime voice of Alabama football, Mr. Eli Gold. Eli, it's great to see you. How's everything going? I am well. Good to see both of you gentlemen. Hope everybody's healthy and well and wise and so on. And uh, just like everybody, I guess we're just counting down the days until... Lord willing, something is played somewhere. Yeah, normally around this time of the year, you're getting ready to start heading to Tuscaloosa for some practices and get all the preseason preparations ready for a full season of Alabama football. But just during this time, how have you been able to stay busy and also keep your mind sharp, knowing that we are going to have football at some point, hopefully? Well, I don't know how sharp my mind is, but, uh, you know, I'm just uh, keeping up with everything. Um, I've got a list of press releases right here. You know, this is for, uh, you know, Dylan Moses and Sertan going into the Bednarik Award watch list and all sorts of stuff. So I'm I'm keeping up, obviously, with all that goes on. But, um, you know, it's, it's just it, there is a degree of tedium here. You know, you read a lot. You watch TV. You uh, my wife and I are blessed to have a small place at the lake. So we we've been spending some time out there. Uh, but uh, I did do a couple of uh, shows with Nick Saban last week. Uh, part of his responsibilities during the offseason is to make appearances normally in person at luncheons and dinners. Uh, and, and he and I have gotten to the point where I'll travel with him a good bit and I'll, we'll do what we call a town hall discussion. He has gotten tired over the years of standing up at the podium making a speech, answering questions, and be done. He That had just gotten a little stale for him. So a couple of years ago, the, he made the suggestion, what if you and I, talking to me, he said, what if you and I just sit up on the stage like two guys at a bar and shoot the breeze about whatever? Football, yes. Life, yes. Golf, yes. Whatever it might be. And I said, sure, man. It says that you're the star. You said, whatever you want to do is fine with me. So we have been doing those town hall meeting style things. Well, what, two of them that we do each summer are for our bigger sponsors. Uh, one is Golden Flake Snack Foods, now in their 63rd year with the university as a sponsor. And they, because of their, uh, their seniority and because of their... Uh, their generosity, uh, they have earned a luncheon with Nick Saban every summer. Uh, it's usually done on a Tuesday afternoon prior to the media days or something like that. And then the Crimson Tide Sports Network, our parent company, has a dinner for our larger sponsors. And those people who have, again, earned the right to attend this dinner, uh, Coach Saban and I are there, and we do our our deal on the stage. Well, we had those a, a week or so ago, but again, they weren't in person. There was no sit-down dinner. There was no lunch buffet. There was nothing. It was just done on Zoom. But uh, that's uh, those are some of the responsibilities that he and I have during the summer months. So we did those a couple of weeks ago, and they went very well. He was uh, in a very good mood, but I was here in my office, and he was in his office, and, uh, you know, we had, I don't know, 600 people or whatever it was on the on the Zoom deal. Uh, so I've been doing some of those items. I've been doing a few other things for uh, the alumni folks, but um, otherwise it's been a lot of sitting around and reading and, and just waiting for the season to get here. Eli, how has your relationship grown with Coach Saban throughout the years? It's grown uh, exponentially. It really has. We've always gotten along. Let's start with that, Kyle. We've always we've gotten along well. It's he, he is different in that he and I deal with each other when we need to. We get along wonderfully. We get along great. But he had learned, he knows that sitting around and talking to old Eli for an hour and a half is not going to help Alabama win football games. Conversely, 
every other coach with whom I have worked, dating back to Bill Curry, so that goes a long way back, we would, for instance, our pregame radio show, we would always tape that on Friday, whether it was in the hotel, whether it was in their office, whether it was at their home, whatever it might have been. And we would sit around, my wife and, and daughter would show up with me, and we'd all sit around, we'd shoot the breeze for a, a long time, just general stuff, and then, all right, let's turn the machine on. We'd turn on the tape recorder in those days. Uh, now it's an MP3 player or an iPhone, but in those days, a little tape recorder. We would tape the show, and then when we finished the show, we'd kick back and sit around again for another half hour. Uh, we would, we, one night, Gene Stallings and I were, who were, we were both building homes at the same time. He told me to bring my blueprints to Columbus, Mississippi, where we stayed before the game in Starkville. And he said, Hey, let's, let's compare blueprints. Let's look I mean, now. Now, of course, his house looked like the Marriott and mine looked like a little, uh, a little outlier building in the backyard, but but, you know, we went, we were sitting there going over blueprints. He goes, now you see, you need to put an electric outlet right here, he'd say to me, because, I mean, so we would all, Mike Shula and I, uh, we'd get, we would talk, I would talk with him about stuff we, I never talked with anybody, religion. He, he was a religious man, and, and, and uh, we would talk religion, we would talk NASCAR, we would talk all sorts of stuff. Nick Saban, we taped that show two hours before kickoff. And I mean two hours. When we play on CBS and the kickoff is at 2.37 Central Time or 3.37 Eastern, well, he and I don't meet at 12.30. We meet at 12.37. He's not there at 12.30. We do the show, and for those 15 minutes, I have his undivided attention. But as soon as I'm done... You know, he's out the door on to whatever he's doing next. Uh, you know, we, we, we are very cordial. We get along wonderfully. Like I say, we, we have a great relationship. But we just don't, you know, sit around and, and shoot the breeze. Uh, when I show up to practice during the week, you know, sometimes he'll acknowledge me. Sometimes he won't. Sometimes he'll just give me one of these, you know, like, how are you? Uh, sometimes not even that. And I found out that, you know, I had to ask the very first year uh, when he was with us, we didn't we didn't talk much at all. We really didn't. And I thought I had ticked him off. So I had I called Jim Hawthorne, who at the time was the voice of the LSU Tigers. And Jim had worked with with Coach Saban. And I said, Jim, I said, I think I, I ticked him off. He said, well. He said, let me tell you, he said, I worked with the man for four years and change. He goes, we never had a conversation. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he's just not given to talking much. And now, of course, we do talk. And, and, you know, he'll always take my phone call if necessary. I don't abuse that right. But, you know, I do have total access, uh, you know, myself and all of my color men over the years. You know, Kenny Stabler, Phil Savage, now John Parker. Uh, John Parker Wilson, we can go to practice, obviously, start to finish. We can go into the locker room. We can watch tapes. We can do anything that we want. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we have a good, respectful business relationship. But, you know, he knows that he can throw barbs at me. He'll, he'll take a couple of shots at me, well-meaning. And, uh, and he'll also know that I can, I'll, I'll take a couple of barbs at him. Nothing huge, but you know, I can make fun of his golf game a little bit because I know he's ready to come back at me with, with some responses. So we get along just fine, Kyle. And I'm sure in a way he's made you a better broadcaster, maybe a better interviewer, knowing how questions that are going to be asked. And I mean, you talk to him for a full coach's show or for that whatever five minute period in the pregame. It can be an intimidating setting, but I'm sure he in a way gets the best out of you, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he makes me... Uh prepare a bit more uh, with all the other coaches I would just turn on the tape recorder and my next question would oftentimes be predicated upon their previous answer 
Now, clearly, there are always some things you have to talk about, whatever the game, whatever that week's news was. You know, you'd always cover that. But uh, oftentimes, you know, the coach would say something, and I would say in my, bri- in my mind, I said, well, that's pretty good. I said, I'll just follow up on that. Uh, with Coach Saban, I actually sit in the press box before I go down to the locker room. And because I host the one-hour show with him or the 90-minute show with him on Thursday nights, um, I have already spoken with him extensively just a day and a half prior. Uh, but I will write down on a business card questions that I want to ask him. Uh, I don't use that card when I'm in with him, but I just want to make sure that in my mind I know what to ask. I, I have learned over the years that he hates to compare. You don't want to use that C word. Uh, I, I asked him very early in our tenure, I said, you know, we, and it was a comparison, not so much of, of talent level, but it was a comparison of, of styles. Talking about uh, Eddie Lacy and, and, and Mark Ingram and Trent Richardson and so on, all great running backs. But I had, you know, compare you know, for me what the fans are going to see and yada, yada, yada. Well, he looked at me. He gave me one of those glares. It felt like somebody had come up behind me with a with a hypodermic needle full of ice water and shoved it into my spine. I just knew that I had done something wrong, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, he gave me a, a so-so answer. Show is over. And normally he's already up and out the door. By the time I'm doing our outro, I have a a live read for a sponsor and then a commercial cue and yada, yada. Um, This time he sat there and I'm saying to myself, "Uh uh-oh. And he looked at me and he said, that was a stupid question. (laughs) And, and I started answering him back. I said, well, coach, I didn't think it was. And I stopped realizing I was not going to win that discussion. And he said, I will not. I hate comparing people. He said, because if I say something good about player A, and if I don't say the same thing about player B, people are automatically going to think that I like A better than B, or that B can't do what A did, or C is not as good as this. He said, I just don't do so. And since then, I've never asked him to compare. I, and, and in instances when I've had to do a comparison, we were in Arkansas. And we were playing uh, the Razorbacks, and they had Gerald Sprinkle, that big tight end that they had there. And uh, Brett Bielema used him as a, as a, a receiver. Uh, he was very, very good. Uh, previously, Bama had played Ole Miss, and they had Evan Ingram, the great tight end there. And Bama had trouble stopping Evan Ingram. They just couldn't control him. I needed... In this pregame show, I needed to compare, for, for substance purpose, I needed to compare Gerald Sprinkle with Evan Ingram without using the C word, without saying compare. So what I did was I said, Coach, I said, let's talk about the tight ends. I said, you know, Brett Bielema uses, uh, you know, ha- has a way of using uh, Gerald Sprinkle. And uh, Hugh Freeze, at the time, who was coaching at Ole Miss, said he has a way of using Evan Ingram, who, who you know, had a pretty good day against Alabama. How do you handle this tough tight end? And during the course of his answer, he compared, without using the C word, he compared how they, use, at least not so much the ability of the players, but how the teams used their tight end. So, so I learned that. Uh, you know, from the get-go. But otherwise now, we we have no problems. We get along fine, and, uh, you know, everything is uh, everything is good. Legendary figure in Nick Saban, and for you, you grew up uh, surrounded by some legendary figures in New York, and they were mostly in your transistor radio. What was the spark for you for broadcasting and specifically listening to the radio? I was a terrible student, had no interest in going to school. That was number one. I was a, a great first baseman playing softball and Little League in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, 
I really had a, a spectacular glove, but I couldn't hit the, the very, very well. And of course, I was always larger than the average bear. So it became clear I was not going to be a world-class athlete of any type. So I said, how can I be part of the world of sports uh, without being an athlete? I loved the games. I watched them. I was a super spectator. And of course, you got to remember in those days, you know, it was a small TV screen on black and white, no cable. But I, you know, sat there and watched everything I could. And uh, I'd real, I real, and I love traveling. I always dreamed about going places and seeing this and seeing that. And it, it dawned on me that I could be a sports broadcaster. Uh, I mean, the, the first entree to sports for me was selling peanuts at Madison Square Garden. I couldn't afford to get in. We didn't have the money. My dad had passed away when I was very young. Uh, he died of cancer. And uh, I, I said, well, if I can't afford to go in, what's the next best option? And that's for them to pay me to go in. So I'd, show, I'd sell peanuts at the garden. And instead of standing down in, in the good seats where the rich people tended to give you a tip when you sold your, your, your product, I went up to the cheap seats. I went up to the blue seats and hung out near the press box to watch the broadcast. I mean, I was a real geek, man. I would stand there holding my basket full of peanuts, and I'd be staring into the press box. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I was just enthralled with watching these men read, watching somebody hand them a card and read the card, watching them talk to their, to their analysts alongside. And then when these men came out to go to the bathroom or to get to the elevator or what have you, I descended upon them like a, like a swarm of locusts with all sorts of questions. Um, so that's what, uh, you know, I just had the interest. I, I loved sports and I wanted to be a broadcaster. I just knew that that's what I, and when I graduated from eighth grade, when I got out of eighth grade, we put out a little uh, yearbook and it had a space to write down, you know, all sorts of stuff. And one of the things was future occupation. And in the eighth grade, I wrote down sports broadcaster. And, uh, you know, that was my site. I, I set my sights. And then, you know, as has well been documented, I did not spend a whole lot of time in school. Um, you know, I grew up in New York City where there were 77 radio stations. Um, things were different back in those days. Uh, so I spent time working at some of the greatest radio stations in America. I never got paid, but I was living at home. Uh, I had no expenses. I was a young kid, but I would be at WOR radio and WNEW and WCBS FM. I'd work at these stations, learn the business, then eventually learn, get a job with the mutual broadcasting system. Uh, and uh, then I became an audio engineer for a couple of networks. Uh, and I just met a lot of people, and then eventually one job leads to the next, and I uh, was able to get hired on uh, in the old Eastern Hockey League, which was the league about which the movie Slapshot was made. And that started me. I was terrible, man. I was awful. I mean, I was just terrible on the air. But it was a low-impact broadcast. You probably couldn't have heard the station across the street from their stick. Uh, but uh, I learned play-by-play, play, and uh, then one job led to the next, to the next, to the next. But, uh, you know, I, I loved Mel Allen growing up. I'd, I'd listen to him on the radio, the tr my little transistor radio. And for you young kids out there, if you don't know what a transistor radio is, you can Google it. Uh, I, I would fall asleep with that little button in my ear listening to he and Red Barber do Yankee baseball. Then I'd fall asleep, and the next morning, of course, the batteries were dead. You had to replace the batteries. But, uh, you know, listening to him, listening to Bob Wolf, a great baseball, hockey, and basketball broadcaster, listening to Marv Albert in those days do the Rangers and the Knicks on WNBC, Radio 66. Not WNBC, WNBC, <laughs> Radio 66 in New York. Uh, those were the people who, you know, uh, Marty Glickman, uh, who did the high school game of the week on Channel 11 television, 
and, and I didn't have much to do in high school. I wasn't a, a student uh, at all. But, you know, when Marty came to Midwood High School to do the game of the week against Erasmus, uh, I hung out with the TV crew. I was just eating up with it, Raj. I was just eating up with it. And uh, and I bet you remember some of those names, Kyle, that, uh, that oh, I yeah. just mentioned yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you would be around some of these guys or listening to those broadcasts, uh, you know, Marty Glickman helped train Marv Albert. And you've mentioned before, sure. Marv Albert was so good on the radio. I think a lot of the generations now know him just as being like the yeah. definitive television voice of basketball. But what were the Much fundamentals? Yeah. What made him so good on radio? What were some of the building blocks of play by play you learned from those guys? That just because the game is going fast, you don't have to. I put that into great use in my 41 years with NASCAR. Just because the cars are going 200 miles an hour doesn't mean I have to. And people can't listen as quickly as we can talk. So I learned to slow down. Even if I was a half a tick behind the action, the presentation was far more important then the speed, you start going fast, you start slurring your words, you start fumfering. I, and I've, I've noticed over the years from, from way back when to where we are today, my delivery is far more deliberate now than it was when I was a kid, uh, as I've learned uh, to go. And the other thing is you can never describe too much on radio. You know, we are the eyes of the listener. I don't worry about the people who are watching on television. I know they're there, but I'm not broadcasting for them. I'm broadcasting to the people who cannot see the event. There's not anything worth that worth it that it, you don't describe. If you get a whiff of popcorn coming through the air, you mention that. <clears throat> the lights are on, you mention that. Uh, it's not enough to say that it's a gray day. You know, I'll say the pewter gray sky. Um, uh, Kevin Harlan, whose work I, I love, uh, he happens to be a dear friend, but that has no notwithstanding. I love his work. I've learned from him. I, for years, I would always say, you know, quarterbacks in the shotgun gets the snap. Well, that was never enough for Kevin Harlan. Kevin would say he'll get the snap belt high, chest high. He'll reach to his right to grab the snap. That's what radio is all about. It's a descriptive art. Uh, I'm not a commentator. I'm not an editorialist. I am a professional describer. That's what I tell people. Um, I, I, I don't offer editorials or commentary on the air. I describe what I see. You know, why would I want to tell you what such and such is doing when I got Kenny Stabler sitting next to me, who's been there and done that? You know, what right do I have to analyze something? So I am a professional describer. But as a result of that, there, you, you can never say too much as in a descriptive nature. And the game nowadays, it's much more up-tempo. And, and I like what you said about trying to slow down over the years, because that's something that I consciously have tried to do and think about. But when the game's moving so fast and you have to get the formation in, how do you economize words, try to find ways where you're not talking into a snap or talking too fast prior to a snap? Very simple. You, you throttle your color man. You know, you'll, you, I'm, I'm being very serious. Many times, and, and Roger can tell you he has sat in the booth, many times I'll, I'll reach out like this in front of John Parker or in front of Snake or Phil or whomever, not because what they're saying is not good, but because I need the time, you know, and I'll just go quickly back to the line of scrimmage, two wides right, two wides left. Well, what did that take me? Three seconds, and, and you're back to it again. So it's not that difficult, really. Uh, if you economize, well, maybe you economize in names, you know, two wides to the right, two wides to the left. Instead of saying, you know, Jerry, Judy and, and Henry Ruggs are wide to the right and Joe Blow and this guy are wide to the left. 
Uh, you can just describe what you're seeing, and the names will come as, as the play develops. Um, so that's uh, basically what I do, but uh, the pacing is most important to me. Uh, I, I don't want to start going crazy speed-wise, and uh, it just, I think it uh, takes from the broadcast. How much memorization do you do of the opponent of skill positions of an entire defense? So does that, in a way, make it much easier for you to call the game more fluently if you have names and numbers down just like that? Well, I do have names and numbers down to some degree, okay? I am not going to lie. I don't memorize every name and number. Uh, the, the primary players, yes. I mean, I, I know the primary guys. And, of course, when I do the NFL, I'm lucky in that I love the NFL and I recognize so many of these players. You know, when, when I would do the Indianapolis Colts and there's a guy in the backfield with, with dreadlocks hanging out of the back of his helmet, you know, you don't need to see the number. It was Edger and James. You, you just knew who it was. Um, and, of course, as the game goes, you will memorize more and more of the numbers through repetition. But I have a wonderful spotter in Butch Owens, who has been with me now for the full 32 years. I, I have an extensive depth chart that I use, a spotting chart, as most guys do, with everything on it. So I'm not shuffling papers. And when I'm sitting there with my binoculars up, sometimes I can quickly peek down under the binoculars and double check myself, you know, 33 for Utah State is whomever. Uh, so, and you know, you, you just do it. And the more you do it, the more adept at it you become. That's something you learn after all the years. But I, I the basic names, the, the quarterback, the, the top runner or two, the premier wide receiver, the top tight end uh, for the opponents, those names I've got. Um, the second string right guard, when he comes in, well, there's time to look down and, and grab that name off the chart. Yeah, you mentioned your depth chart. Could you hold up a copy of that to the camera so we can kind of see? And then yeah. as you kind of hold it up, what's important for you to have under every player's bio? You know, how many stats are you sure. putting there for Mac Jones? Are you doing anything, storylines, anything like that? Well, this is the, uh, this is the chart for Alabama. And, and Michigan, okay? That's the game, the uh, the, the bowl game last year. Uh, I don't know how well you can see things here, but here's quarterback Mac Jones. Above it, it says 6'2", 205, RSSO. So he's a 6'2", 205-pound redshirt sophomore. It says Jacksonville, Florida. Then it says Bowles, B-O-L-L-E-S, in parentheses. That's his high school's name. And I have his that the same for every player. Then I have L is last game, the statistics right here. Last game, which would have been the Auburn game, 26 of 39, 66.7% efficiency, 335 yards passing, four touchdowns, two interceptions. And uh, then underneath it, there's a category that says S, and that's the season statistics. So if he throws another touchdown against Michigan. Well, I could look, he had 11 coming in for the year. So that's his 12th touchdown pass of the year. So it's right there in front of me. Then I have all sorts of biographical information that I will update throughout the course of the year. Some of it I don't update at all. Uh, some I do, but it says 2019 uh, Academic Excellence Award. Three games started, 11 games played in 19. Career passing and rushing numbers coming in. Um, you know, all sorts of stuff. His career highs, his stuff in high school. Uh, 94, it says 94 TDP Waddle versus VULL. That's a 94-yard touchdown pass to Jalen Waddle against Louisiana Lafayette in 18. Second longest in Alabama history. Uh, I have four and a star. So he was a four-star top 20 pro-style quarterback coming out of high school. Then I have written in, I have, for instance, uh, let me take somebody else here. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Najee Harris. Same basic thing here. 
Although you see in Najee's case, you have something in orange right here, and it says two SEC, which means he's on the second team all SEC as voted by the coaches for that season. Uh, but I will have uh, number one in a circle down here. You probably can't see it. It's in pencil. It says one rush, 5.9 L31 LSU, which means he is the number one rusher on the ball club. Averaging 5.9 yards a carry. L31 means his long rush was 31 yards against LSU. Same thing underneath that. number. It says five in a circle. Five REC, the number five receiver on the ball club. 11.3 L42 USM. He's averaging 11.3 yards per reception. A 42-yarder against Southern Mississippi. So I have all of these things uh, for both teams, for whether it's for, for Alabama or for Michigan. And, and I do color code everything just because I do. Uh, here's the Michigan chart for the, same, for the same game. And whether it's Michigan or whether it's Alabama, you'll see some green highlighted splotches across the thing. That's anybody who's from the state of Alabama, just to reference it. So if the Michigan guy is making a play, uh, Devin Gill, you know, whatever it is, or whatever, where, you know, anybody, you, you have it in front of you so you don't have to start searching. Uh, then, of course, I have stuff that you should know, but just in case you forget, head coach Nick Saban. Then underneath that, I have Brian Baker, associate head coach, Jeff Banks, special team, Scott Cochran, strength and conditioning, Charles Huff, associate head coach. Then underneath that, since this is the offense, I have Steve Sarkeesian as the offensive coordinator, Jeff Banks, tight ends coach, Kyle Flood, O-line, Charles Huff, running backs, Holman Wiggins, wide receivers. So if I need to say something about a particular position coach, and if I don't want to start thinking about it, it's right there in front of me. Then I have the team comparison stats. This box right here is Bama offense, Michigan defense. And then the next chart, if this is the Alabama defense, would have Bama defense, Michigan offense. And on the Michigan charts, it's the same thing, Michigan offense against Alabama. And this way, it shows me exactly what the numbers are. First line is scoring. Alabama averaging 48.3 points per game. Michigan's defense giving up only 19.5. And then underneath it, in those little green boxes, it is if it's in a green box, that means they're in the top 20 in the nation. It says, well, maybe you can see here, it says Bama offense, and underneath it, it says SEC and then FBS. So it shows me immediately that Bama is first in the SEC in scoring and second in America. Then it shows me for Michigan, they are fifth defensively in scoring in the Big Ten and they are 18th in America. And every category in defense and offense is there, scoring, rushing, passing, efficiency, and so on. Uh, I have the schedules with the scores of every game on every chart. Uh, I have the score by quarters down here at the bottom. Uh, so if that comes into conversation. And then a few little things that I do. Uh, some of the numbers, like you'll see Evan Neal up here, right there. His number is pink. Well, it's a black number on a pink box. Anybody in a pink box is a true freshman. So you don't even have to look it up. You don't even have to look to see where he is or anything. If it's in a pink box, he's a true freshman. Um, so things of that nature um, are on there. I have the punters here and the place kickers. And then down here, I have the holder and the long snappers. Uh, Everything that I will need, hopefully, is on these charts.
so I don't have to start, uh, you know, searching during the game. And then, of course, for uh, for the other team, I will also have in a contrasting color, for instance, up here, the defensive end, you'll see that I have his name written phonetically because I'm not familiar with him all that well. And it, his first name is K-W-I-T-Y. Last name is P-A-Y-E. I don't want to have to think about it. So it, I, you know, it's pronounced quitty pay. And I just write that in phonetically as I do for anybody whose name might be a little bit unusual. Uh, but again, the same thing for the other team. Here are the coaches, you know. Here's Harbaugh and all of his assistant coaches and the defensive coaches and so on. Uh, here are all the comparison stats I talked about. Bama's offense, Michigan defense. So during a game, I'll have the Alabama offensive chart here, the other team's defensive chart here. Then I'll flip them over when the ball changes hands, and it's still offense and defense, but it'll be Michigan's offense and the Bama defense. So, uh, but I mean, I have everything, even in Michigan's case, uh, you know, who they, when they played a team that was nationally ranked, not only do they have the game and the score and the date and all that, but I write in number 13. So Wisconsin was 13th in the nation the day they played them. Uh, then down here, 14 is Iowa. They were 14th, Iowa was, the day they played them and so on. So I can look quickly and say, well, they've played six teams that are nationally ranked coming into the ball game today. Uh, so that's what I basically have. It, uh, it's, a, it's a long week of preparation, but uh, it pays off come Saturday. It certainly does, so, and we appreciate you showing us uh, those charts. I sent it to, to a guy who who puts it into that nice, neat format for me. Then he ships it to my FedEx office location here in uh, Birmingham. I go down and pick it up. But uh, So that's the, that's the procedure. But I'll start on that on Monday and, uh, you know, wait for the national rankings statistically to come out and all that stuff. And then it's very quickly uh, turned around. Because I have to have this by Wednesday night or Thursday. Because when I do the Nick Saban show Thursday... A, I'm staying in Tuscaloosa for the rest of the weekend if it's a home game. And B, I want to have this in front of me during that Saban show in case, you know, he talks about Joe Blow from Michigan. And I can say, yeah, Kalik Hudson, uh, he was a second team all Big Ten on, you know, last, you know, last season. And, you know, here it is written down. And he's the number one tackler. That's what else I do defensively. On, on I, In yellow, I will have... Number one T, number five T, number ten T, uh, the number ten tackler on the ball club, and again the statistics like I did last week, like I showed you for the offense. Here, their defensive statistics: 59 tackles, three and a half sacks, eight tackles for loss, a fumble caused, five quarterback hurries. So everything that's on the stat sheet is transferred to these charts. So I'm not sitting in and shuffling papers on game day. And you mentioned as well, when you're calling the game, you have that spot chart, of course, is a great resource. But uh, when you're physically calling the game and you use the binoculars, just where do you watch the snap through the binoculars? When do you ever take the binoculars away? How do you really use that to help enhance your call? Uh, I, I use the binoculars until it is clear what the play is. If it's a running play, I keep them up. Uh, in my, you know, on my face. I, I'll stay with them right until the end of the play. If it's clear it's going to be a passing play, well, as soon as the quarterback drops back to throw, I'll pull the binoculars down so I can see who's where and what's going on and who might be free and so on and so forth. Uh, sometimes I will, well, more often than not, I'll double check myself, even though I do have a great spotter, as I mentioned in Butch, uh, you know, he'll point out who's deep on a kickoff you know he'll point to the guy on the chart because you know on these charts i even have a section for returns so uh, and he'll point to all right number eight and he'll point to the far side of the field and then he'll point to number 23 and he'll go like this means he's to the near side vis-a-vis -vis the press box but i always double check that's just the way i am so I'll put the binoculars up and make sure I say eight over there and 23 over here. 
Uh, and we do that more for, in certain games when you're playing Tennessee and they have those hard-to-read numbers and so on. But uh, during a regular play, though, uh, the binoculars are up for the entire play if it's a run and for a uh, up in, until the quarterback drops back on a passing play. How much going into big games, national championship games, and you've had the chance to call a lot of big games in your Alabama football broadcasting career, is it in the back of your mind that these calls, everything that you say is going to live forever? I feel like that's got to be a mental hurdle for a broadcaster going into a big game. It's not so much a hurdle. And uh, I, I do think about it on what will clearly be the biggest play of the day. If you can, if you can isolate that play, two seconds to go, Tennessee, you know, trying to kick a field goal to upset Alabama. And I'm saying to myself, you know, don't blow this because this is going to, this call is going to be played everywhere tomorrow and it'll live in the Bryant Museum forever. And, you know, if, if it's a block by Alabama, which it was in the case of uh, Terrence Cody a number of years ago. I make sure I don't yell and scream like a nut. Uh, we've all heard those calls on the air where the, the broadcaster is unintelligible and the hosts almost make fun of him. Uh, I don't want to be that guy. So I always remind myself, don't blow this, get it right. Then in the case of the win over Georgia uh, in overtime, when Tua hit Devontae Smith, um, you didn't know that that was going to be the play, but you just, I just always remind myself, you know, be calm, be cool. And I will raise my voice inflection and a little bit of extra volume. But if you listen, even go back and listen to that call, the volume was not crazy. It was voice inflection. And, um, you know, you, you work on, on that, and again, that, that comes by experience. But, no, I don't, I don't worry about the calls per se unless it's an absolute, you know, big, and you can isolate it. This, you know, if this kid makes the kick, the game is over. Or if this is this or that is that, whatever. But, you know, in the case of that Georgia game, you know, you just, you just went with it, and, uh, you know, you hope for the best. But I... I try not to yell and scream, but there's no question we're excited. But there's a difference between being excited. And as a matter of fact, I think I've told Roger this story. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back, but it was a very interesting call. The day after the Alabama-Georgia game, I got a phone call from a, a good friend of mine, Eric Asseltine, who was the voice of the Memphis Grizzlies of the NBA. And he said, I got to tell you, every broadcaster needs to listen to your game-winning touchdown call. He said, and you did that magnificently. He said, I'll tell you, he said, if that was me, this is Eric talking, and he said, if it was the Grizz having just won the NBA championship on a guy chucking up the ball as soon as he crossed midcourt and it was nothing but net, he said, you wouldn't have been able to understand a word I was saying. He said, I would have been absolutely berserk on the air he said what you did last night should be a a a, a lesson for every broadcaster out there so, and i and i i was you know that was very kind of him to say but it was a good call in that respect it was a huge moment obviously but everything we said and did was was totally clear and understandable though obviously very very excited but not out of control. How long does it take you to get that inner calm? Because in the end, you are giving the information to the listener in the car. So if it's an incredible moment, and in a way, I mean, in a way you are rooting for Alabama, it's the Alabama radio network, but you have to make sure that you convey that in a way where it's digestible for the listener. So how long did it take to get to that point where, yeah, mm -hmm. this is an incredible moment, the confetti's raining down, but I have to do my job, and I still have to remain emotionally calm. It's a great question. I can't tell you when it happened. I mean, it, it happened in steps, I'm sure, over the course of these 30-some-odd years. Uh, 
so to say that it happened 10 years in or or eight years in or or, or 14 years in, I, I really don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I know I've always been very aware of it. And, uh, and I've always felt for those guys on the air who just get, you know, skewered by the guys on SportsCenter or Fox Sports and, you know, listen to this call from yesterday. Yeah. Good Lord. And they make fun of the kid. And I just didn't want to be that guy that they made fun of. So I, I don't know if I can truly tell you, Kyle, it happened at this point. It, it probably just developed you know, over the course of years. But, I mean, it had already been in place, uh, you know, when Bama played Texas in the national championship game at the Rose Bowl. Uh, you know, it, it, it might have happened in the late 90s. I don't know. I, I'd really be guessing. Mm-hmm. On the show, Eli, we haven't had many hockey broadcasters, and that's something that you've done for many years. It's what really brought you to Alabama many years ago. Uh, I don't, Kyle, have you done any hockey broadcasting? Have not. Nobody. Wants I to haven't hear that. either. So, if Kyle or I were going to fill in for you on a Birmingham hockey game, what would you tell us is most important? And what would you tell young broadcasters trying to call hockey? What is most important on radio to have a successful hockey play-by-play call? The biggest thing, and I, I, I get sent tapes all the time from young broadcasters. Would you mind taking a listen to this and critiquing my work? And I said, I'll be honored. Thank you. Send it on. The biggest thing is, A, pace yourself. Again, just because the puck is going 125 miles an hour doesn't mean you have to. And follow the puck. You will never get in trouble if you're following the puck. And I will tell young broadcasters, I had a young guy, I did a game, uh, I forget, a year or so ago. And there was a kid from some minor league team had come up and asked if he could sit in the booth. And I said, sure. And the guy then sent me some of his work. And it was okay as far as the pacing and what have you, but you had no idea where the puck was. You had no idea where the puck was. And he didn't realize that. So I said to this young man, I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, I want you to put that tape on in your office. I want you to lean back in your chair, close your eyes, and listen and see if you can follow the puck. You know, it's not enough to say, you know, tips it over to, to Jones or, you know, whatever. Where was Jones sitting or standing on the ice? Where... He said, I said, you tell me if you could truly follow the puck, not who had it, but where they were situated. He'll take a big blast. Well, did it come from the face-off circle? Was it from the blue line? Was he in the middle of the circles? Was he, where, where was he? And the kid wrote me back shortly thereafter and said, my God, he said, you have no idea where the puck was. I said, no, sir, I sure didn't. So that's the biggest thing. Follow the puck and describe. Again, going back to what I talked about earlier, you can never describe things too much. You know, where is the puck? At the face-off circle to the right of the goaltender. You know, and periodically in my play-by-play, and it didn't matter if I was doing the NHL or minor league, and as the play was going, I said, all of this taking place to my right, to the near side of goaltender, you know, Paul Mason. Because the fan at home visualizes us sitting at the center ice line, at the red line. And so when I say it's to my right, you can almost visualize your listeners' heads turning this way. And then I'll say, and here come the Predators. They break it out of the zone right to left and such and such. And you can almost visualize their heads listening, going like this. I want to place them in the arena. And the best way to do that is directionally. Uh, I talk about, and even I, in football, I talk about the far side and the near side. I don't usually use the, the short side of the field or the wide side. I will say, you know, they're at the hash mark, you know, the right side hash mark across the way 
closest to the, you know, to the Tennessee bench or what I, I use directional references so people can in their mind's eye, regardless of where we're sitting, whether we're at the 30, whether we're in the end zone, as far as the listener is concerned, I'm on the 50. And that's how I do it. And that's how you do it for hockey. Just uh, follow the puck, but describe where it is and, and you know, and, and don't get blown away by the speed of the game. And, and, and we talked about memorization. Now, in hockey, you have to memorize the entire roster, obviously, for both teams. They, they change as the play is ongoing. They jump on and off the ice. So you must have the full rosters memorized in hockey. We've talked about some football plays, how you describe it, what's important with some different play calls and things like that. But what about atmosphere? Because atmosphere is one of the best things about college football, and you help mm-hmm. make that alive before there's a kickoff, before Alabama runs on the field or going to any of these great places where Alabama will play. What's most important to you in describing and capturing the atmosphere and then getting that onto the radio for the listeners? I just describe exactly what I'm seeing and feeling. Uh, Again, I go back to being a professional describer. Uh, The colors, the sounds, the heat, the cold, the smell, the lights are on, the lights aren't on, uh, the color of the sky, uh, the emotion. Uh, Here come the cheerleaders, you know, here come the officials walking out. There's nothing that happens that I don't describe. Nothing. You know, here are the captains coming out of the locker room, walking on the near sideline and the far sideline, getting ready to handle the toss of the coin. Nothing happens that I don't describe. I want those people who are listening to see it all in their mind's eye through my words. So the emotion is there. You know, normally, obviously, this year might be different. Who knows? But you've got a full stadium. You've got, uh, you know, the band is playing. You've got all of that. Uh, And I describe all of that. You know, here's the million-dollar band marching out, 400 members strong. And, you know, the the tuba, you know, section is doing this, that, and the other. There's nothing that is too small to be described. So that's what I do. Uh, and then we mix in the news and the, and, and the, you know, the information that we need to impart. But my job, my only job, is to take that listener, whether they're in the car, whether they're at work, whether they're in a hospital with no TV, whether they're who knows where they are. Maybe the game's on cable. And yes, believe it or not, there are people in this world who don't have cable TV. My job is to take them from where they are sitting and place them right on that midfield logo so they can feel all the the emotion. You know, same thing in NASCAR. I always used to talk about the volcano of sound and speed. And, you know, as the cars came by uh, and talk about the, the wind that would be generated by 43 cars going by at 200 miles an hour. And, you know, just anything you can see or feel uh, you need to impart to the listener. Verbiage um, for you. There's a million ways that you can describe somebody catching a pass or running the ball over right tackle. Do you keep a list or do, do you think about that while you're doing the game at no, all? Not no. at all. No list. I don't think about a lot of things during the game. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I describe where, how they did it. You know, I, I, was, I was actually watching a tape the other day because I had to do something for the network. And uh, it was a kickoff, and the ball bounced, and it was grabbed by the return man at the two-yard line. And so I said, here's the kick. It's going to be short. It bounces at the seven, goes right to uh, Waddle, who reaches behind and over his left shoulder to grab the football and start running it out. Well, behind and over his left shoulder is is something I, I think is 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 key because it is a descriptive of what actually happened. It, yeah, I could have said, you know, Waddle's got it on the one bounce and you know, but I I will not say that. I will say reaches over his left shoulder and makes the grab. 
you know, things that I've learned from other broadcasters. So I am an, I overly prepare and I overly describe. But in radio, you can never really overly describe. People always say to me, why do you always describe the uniforms that they're wearing before the game? But we can see that. I said, well, I'm not broadcasting for your benefit. Yes, you can see that you're there or you're watching the TV. I'm doing this for the, I mean, the number of letters we get from blind people, from military people in some godforsaken corner of the Bagram Air Force Base with no access to television and they're listening. They can't see the colors of the uniforms. You know, why do I talk about, you know, and the wide receiver comes wide left and his towel is bouncing off his left hip? Why do I say that? It, that's no big deal. But it's what's happening. And I'll say that. I will just describe it. If I saw it and it was enough to register with me, then I'll just let the listener know that here comes, you know, Jerry Judy, wide left, the towel bouncing off his left hip as he takes his spot. Because it's there. So the verbiage, you know, obviously... And again, there are some things I say that others don't, you know, uh, you know, everybody has their their pet calls. Uh, I, I don't really, you know, I say touchdown Alabama, but that's a descriptive too. I don't really have a, you know, an oh my, like like McHubert in Florida uh, or others like that. I just, you know, I, I respect our audience to know what's going on and to be smart enough and to have their own emotions. My job is to bring that event to the person who is not there and let them interpret it as they want. And again, if it's a technical thing, well, that's why John Parker Wilson or Snake or Phil Savage or whomever is sitting beside me. Uh, so the verbiage to me is is important and, and very important in, in when you're describing something. Final one for me on a, on a normal college football Saturday or an NFL Sunday, say Alabama has a noon kickoff. How much are you listening to other broadcasters? You mentioned Kevin Harlan and things that you, you've gotten from him, but are you still listening and learning from other broadcasters around the country? Sure. Sure. You always do. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, we're on the air three hours before a game and, you know, I've got other stuff to do prior to that. So I don't always get time on game day. But all of those games are replayed. They're archived somewhere, whether it's Sirius XM or on a network's website or what have you. Or you can, you know, on Sunday, if I am or I'm not working, I'll, I'll watch NFL games and then I'll listen to Kevin Harlan while also watching, you know, Monday Night Football. Um, you, you're never too old to learn. You're never to, and if you think you can't learn, then there's some young kid out there who is learning who's just waiting to take your job away from you. You can't get lazy. You, I mean, and there are days, I, I promise you, there are days when, and I, I don't want to point out a school in particular, but I, I guess I should. It's late in the season. You've had a great year, and you're stepping out of conference to play school X, one of those schools that obviously on paper has no chance of beating you and you should win by 60. And you're sitting there and you're putting the old chart together and, and you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to wait for that stat to come out. It's, it, it's not going to be a factor. And chances are it's not going to be a factor, but son of a gun, Something happens, and if you didn't have that stat and it and you needed it, you feel like like garbage. And so you're staring at these stat sheets, and it's late in the season, and you're you're tired, and it's a game again that that Bama ought to win by 50 or 60. You cannot allow yourself to get lazy. You cannot. And people always ask me, do you prepare? How different is it to prepare for a national championship game? It's not different at all. And I've done, what, eight of them. I prepare for that national championship game exactly the way I would prepare for Alabama and Western Carolina. Uh, 
it really, there is no difference. If you screwed up on the air, people are going to talk about it. It didn't matter if the opponent was Texas or, or Western Carolina. You've still screwed up. I try not to give myself the opportunity to screw up. So, you know, that's the one thing about this business. It's fun. I've never, you know, you work your butt off, but I've never worked a day in my life, if you know what I'm saying. I've worked my butt off, but I've never worked a day in my life because I'm excited to get out of bed and come to the office and prepare for the next broadcast. And even if there is some tedium in there, you know, preparing my notes, preparing the bios, doing all this, that, and the other, uh, it's it's still, uh, you know, it's still a great way to make a living, and I won't risk getting lazy and losing that way to make a living. That was very well said, and as we start to wrap things up, uh, you know, Eli, the, really the target audience for this show is college students who are starting to learn about broadcasting. That's why we talk so much broadcast theory and the process of preparation, things like that. But either college students, high school students who may have an interest in broadcasting but don't know the first steps to take, just if we could have you kind of as a commencement speaker and you could give just a few nuggets of some things they should do to really jumpstart their careers, what would it be? That's a great question. The first thing is, it's no different than being the quarterback or being an NASCAR driver. You can't replicate getting those reps. You can't replicate getting those, that repetition in practice. I can't tell you how many times, and I'll, I'll this, and I say this not to drop names, but Bob Costas is a dear friend. We were, we knew each other as kids. When we were together in Syracuse, New York, doing hockey, I was doing minor league hockey for the Long Island team. He was doing the Syracuse Blazers of the Eastern Hockey League back decades ago. He met me at the Hotel Syracuse. I was, that's where we stayed, and we were going to lunch. And as he and I walked to lunch, we were doing the play-by-play of our, the two of us walking down the street. I'm serious. There they come upon the fire hydrant. Gold goes to the right, Costas to the left. We would just describe anything. We would see kids playing a pickup game, and I would do this all the time. I'd see kids playing a pickup basketball game on a schoolyard. I had no idea who the heck they were. I would just stand there and do the play-by-play. It didn't matter. I wasn't doing it to be factual as to, well, I don't know, is that Johnson or is that Jones? Is that, I don't know these kids. I made up names, but I was working on my descriptive skills. You know, Jones over to Johnson, dribbles, you know, penetrates, whatever it is. I used to go to ball games. You know, if you're a kid now, go to your high school basketball games. Go to your high school baseball games. Sit as far out in the outfield, away from everybody, so you don't feel like a goober. Because, you know, I, I did that when I was a kid. I went to Yankee Stadium almost every day. You could, Of course, you could get into Yankee Stadium in those days for 60 cents. I understand things are different. But even to this day, you can go to the University of Alabama ball games, women's hoops. You can go sit in the, the far reaches of Coleman Coliseum, practice into your tape recorder, into your MP3 player, into your iPhone. Practice your play-by-play. Again, it doesn't matter. I would, I would sit so many times in the, in the outfield at Yankee Stadium doing the play-by-play, just making stuff up, but calling the ball as it was in action. You know, Chambliss bounces it to third, Jones has it, onto Johnson at second for one, onto first a double play. Well, it might not have been Chambliss, might have been not have been Jones or Johnson, but I was describing. I was learning how to describe things as they happen. Go to your school's high school or college baseball, softball, men's or women's hoops, Sit far away so you don't feel self-conscious and just get those repetitions in. There's no substitute for reps. And that's my very first thing I would instruct them. Uh, And I would also tell you, 
never to pass up on a radio job for television. Radio makes you a far better broadcaster. Radio allows you to learn how to ad lib, how to think on your feet. You're not just sitting there reading off a teleprompter. Radio, the greatest broadcasters of this day, all started on radio. All of them, you name them, they started on radio. Whoever you think the best is, they started on radio. And yes, TV pays more, I understand that. But, you know, 45 seconds on camera at the start, maybe a minute, you know, in the middle of the fifth inning, and maybe a post-game on-camera hit. I know people like to have their puss on on the tube, but it's not worth that. It's never worth that to turn down a good job. If you get a radio job to do play-by-play or to do a, be a studio host or whatever it is you want to do, don't say no to radio. Radio is the greatest training ground that this business has. So those are just a few little tips right there. Well, that's really good, and that's exactly what we were looking for, and you've been someone that's helped my career a lot, and I know you've shared a lot of wisdom that's helped a lot of young broadcasters, so we just thank you for this past hour, because who knows the next careers you're going to influence from some of the lessons we learned today, so just thank you, Eli. I hope so. It's a great way to make a living. It's a fun way to make a living. It does take a lot of work, but uh, you know, I'm happy to help out, because I did the same thing when I was a kid. I wrote to all sorts of broadcasters. I wrote to everybody. I pestered everybody. Not that you've been pestering me, but I pestered everybody. Some answered, some did not. But uh, I'll never forget the advice from those who were kind enough to give advice. Thanks, Eli. My pleasure, guys. All right. Thanks to Eli Gold. We'll be back with you next week for another edition of Broadcaster Hour. See you, everyone.